Well, you know, I just got from uh, spending a week doing the old uh, business traveling over there in, in Paris, which, you know, sounds luxurious. But I wanted to ask you this, uh, Richard, and, and guest, if you care to weigh in. Now, now, when I get back from a long trip uh, back here to Austin, the first thing I always usually do, there's two things I miss. Well, there's three things. The first thing I miss is like hearing Spanish spoken frequently, but that's that's, you know not really in the same category as other stuff. So it's always nice to come here and then you start hearing Spanish. It's comforting. And uh, I guess if you go to Spain, you don't have that problem. But other than a place where they speak Spanish. Uh, And then the next is like, you know, second, I like to go to a restaurant and just get free refills on drinks. That's always refreshing. especially. And then also iced tea, unsweetened iced tea. Not always possible to get over there. And then, and then third, it's good to get like a taco or some enchiladas or something like that. And I haven't done the third yet, but I'm I'm almost acculturated back in. But I but I ask I ask uh, you one maybe two when you come back from a long trip. Is there any sort of like comforting thing you do, or or does your mind just start rebelling at all the inanity of what it's like to be at home? I love that when you added number three, I thought you were going to say I get to see my family. So I'm glad that tacos actually uh, beat that. So well done, Richard. Tacos are my family. That's, I yeah, get taco, taco one, two, and three. Guacamole comes to visit. No, uh-huh. uh, so, no, my first thing, the best thing when I get done a trip is to get into my own car. Oh, it's just yeah. a moment of such relief when I'm not stuck in a taxi or whatever kind of car, or especially in another country. That drive home is luxurious. You know, that, that is a good point because I, 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 uh, you're making me realize that every time I'm, I'm going back on the little airport shuttle in my car, I think, am I going to remember how to drive? Like it, al- <laughs> it always feels like a, a, a little odd. That's true. That's true. How about yourself, special guest? Do you have any uh, reacculturation comforts that, that you go to? Um, I, I miss dim sum, so I always have to get uh, my mm. dim sum when I get back uh, from a trip overseas. You, you go to the, uh, the, the cart of surprisingly large bill, as I recall how that usually works out. <laughs> it, yeah, you have no idea what, what the plate costs that, that they're presenting to you, but it looks good. <laughs> well, with that, why don't you introduce yourself uh, briefly before we get to the news, and then we'll, uh, we'll come back for more detail about, about your areas of interest and expertise. Sure. Um, I'm Yui Cao. I work for Pivotal. Um, I, I actually wear two hats. So at, at Pivotal, I'm a director of product. I'm responsible for uh, basically the elastic runtime tile and, and the things that go inside that. And I also, with the Cloud Foundry Foundation, I wear the runtime PMC lead hat, and I, I help out with those projects. And amazingly, there's a lot of overlap between those two hats, so, so that's what I do. Yeah, it's, a, it's always fun to meet a new hat rack person. Who's uh, who's running around with multiple things? Well, we'll we'll get to uh, details of a lot of what uh, I don't know uh, the full Venn diagram of your hats is. Maybe we'll figure out if they're cats, caps, or uh, other types of uh, hats. But before that, there's just a few news items. Not a lot going on this week. I think I think uh, I was I was waking up this morning having my coffee, and it looks like uh, Microsoft. Uh, purchased, I guess you would call it a divestiture from Engine Yard, although their association's not so clear and all the stuff here, even though it is clear. Uh, but they bought, how do you say it, Deis? De- Deis. Deis. There you go. Mm-hmm. A godlike company. Now, I, I learned a lot more about them reading up on this news this morning than I've known in a while. My main knowledge of them is that they, they did like a pass thing a while ago, and they have excellent socks at conferences. People who have even better socks are the... Uh, uh, who, who's the the SSD company that is has some fire name Solid Fire? They have the best they have the best socks at DevOps days, but the 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 uh, 
the the God Company even better sucks. But it looks like, uh, in addition to hiring like a uh, other words I can't pronounce, a Kubernetes uh, person back in July, and no doubt some other people over over at Microsoft. Now now they've got like uh, you know I haven't used it firsthand, but what seems to have evolved into a uh, a Kubernetes orchestration uh, layer along with the registry and some other things in there. So I think we were noting this on um, my other podcast, Software Defined Talk, a couple episodes ago, that pretty much everyone, uh, as it were, is on the whole Kubernetes train, except, of course, our, our buddies over at Amazon. So maybe they'll be the uh, the lone holdout to be pretty deeply involved in that. Yeah, I mean, if you're Microsoft, it seems like you're just, you know, I don't know, hoarding assets at this point. They, they support and they've invested in Cloud Foundry. They've obviously done a lot in the Kubernetes space. They've you know, messed around with lots of good platforms, Mesos, others, Docker. So I think they're just not picking any winners. They're going to offer their customers virtually everything. And I'm assuming in this case, I don't know if they would rebrand and resell this. Do they just want to use the IP to make Azure better? Is it an aqua hire? Could be a lot of those things. But, you know, either way, Microsoft's getting pretty credible in this space. And while I don't see a lot of opinions coming out of them about any of this, it seems like they're just willing to offer lots of different things. Yeah, maybe they'll put some little Microsoft logos on their socks or upgrade. That's things. a given. You know, no yeah. one really gives away hoodies that much. I guess they are like 30 or $40, so they're very expensive. Yeah, it's like those water bottles we did at Spring One. Mm. You know, I promptly lost mine like three <laughs> weeks later in Phoenix. I had to get up that at is. like 3 a.m. for a flight, and I guess I just left it. I think I had a black one, and it must have blended in with the little hotel table uh, that, that I was there. So oh, those are excellent. So, uh, yeah, I, there, there's, they, you know, I was looking through one of their, uh, it's actually a, a January 2016 di- uh, framework. And uh, I know that you, Richard, are a connoisseur of, of cloud platform for, uh, diagrams. And, mm. and they have a pretty good one that's worth uh, checking out. Yeah, I saw that. I saw you tweeting about it as well. That's a good hamburger stack, I believe you. Uh... Yeah, yeah. I used to call those burger stacks. Uh, but uh, we have a new diagram out too, right? Or were you, you were sending one around. Is that one public yet? We do. Yeah, it's actually, I think it, I think it's up on our new uh, Pivotal Cloud Foundry page. So it's not news per se. But if you do go to pivotal.io slash platform, there's an entirely new and refreshed uh, PCF page. It, I don't know, shockingly tells you what the product does. Which is always good on a product page. And and I and I, I always like I always like the sort of hipster tron color palette. Sort of like dark <laughs> black blue with some like little lines from the light bikes and everything. It's it's, it's right. Well done. You stare at it long enough it actually does start moving. Mm-hmm. So that's uh that's key. So yeah, it's a great new visualization of what PCF really is, definitely encourage you to check that out. You'll see us uh, inject that into a lot of stuff now. Yeah. Who fights for the user indeed? So also, uh, there, there's, I think, I think there's two items that I ended up grouping together here. One, there was uh, the, 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 the usual, but always useful because it updates the numbers, uh, capital spend on, on top cloud companies. And what was it in, in 2016, there was like, We'll just round up. There was basically $32 billion in spending uh, building out. I assume there are, there are uh, various hardware and uh, maybe real estate. I don't know how. I'm no, I'm no accountant. I don't know how that all gets counts, counted. But it said there was, it was basically up uh, 22% from last year. So there's just a, a, a continuous, uh, I think the word might be onslaught, of just like building up these, uh, these machines out there. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty amazing. That article was... Uh... A fun read. Some some smart sounding fellow said that you know game over for anyone trying to get into this market as general purpose. And even if you are kind of in it, whether you're Oracle or IBM or others, AP obviously got out. VMware got out, as we talked about last week. Rackspace is, is I guess kind of out. So it, it's tough to be in public cloud if you're not one of the big three. If you can't either find a really specific niche to work in or 
that you can you know, simply somehow outcompete these large providers by being more efficient or, or some other innovative way. So I, it just, I didn't continue to double down on things we talked about last week and, and things we all see is that these big three are just plowing money into facilities and capital. And to your point, you know, I think we mentioned last week, like the uh, the Rackspace's CEO's comments on not competing in public cloud where they would have uh, like 300 million free a year to spend on other things. And uh, I mean, uh, clearly, if you're competing with someone who's spending, I mean, if you divide what I let's say, I think the Amazon figure was at least 10 billion they spent like uh, your 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 300 300 million twig is going to be difficult against that. Uh, I don't know, concrete monolith. It's a, right. it's a I mean, difficult game to get involved in. Yeah, at the end of that article has a, a quote from the, the fellow who runs infrastructure at Google saying each of their regions cost between 300 and 600 million. Seems like a big range, but that's uh, a lot of money. And then, and then the other one, uh, I, one, one of my old friends from the uh, systems management world was was linking to this earlier today. There were, of all places, there was a Reuters story. I, I, don't, I don't know how this got on the editorial agenda for them, but it's, it's awfully <laughs> specific. But it was going over kind of the uh, predicting doom in, in large banks, uh, rewriting all their COBOL programming. Now, I always have to remember COBOL ends in an O, not an A, but, you know, <laughs> I got to verify that. But there was an interesting use case in there of, uh, I think it was the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, that in 2012, they spent about $700 million rewriting all of their old COBOL stuff. And I thought that was interesting because, you know, most people we work with in Pivotal and, and, and uh, in, in Cloud Native Land are these large organizations. And, you know, if you, if you extend out the math or so, depending on if you, I always like to round down for estimates, like not round down, but take a, you know, go down to like 500 million instead of 700 million. But if you multiply that across 20 or so banks, and that's like 10 or $15 billion in spending, which, mm-hmm. you know, as I like to say, I think we can all agree on money. But it is an interesting, like, uh, an interesting look at the sheer quantity of, uh, I don't know, enterprise software out there and the huge opportunity for like all of the types of stuff we talk about to uh, to convert it over to that way of doing things. And I guess there'll be some COBOL left over. There's always like old stuff left. Yeah, I mean, I think at the IBM event a couple of weeks ago, they were still using the number, which had said seemed like it's been updated in a while, but like 90% of the world's data is on mainframes. I mean, it was some insane number. And I've seen that for years. And I don't know if that's just not changing or what's going on. But a lot of data is on mainframes. I was at a, an event and spoke a couple of weeks ago, an integration event, and it reminded me how much EDI still runs communication between most companies as they transfer data. Like It's easy for us to think about microservices and queuing and Kafka. And let's remember most data goes through things like EDI and gets stored in the mainframe and maybe sometimes reset ourselves about all the new hotness. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me, I, I visited a, a, a large company when I was in Paris last week, and they had, uh, I don't know, I, mean, I, th- I, I think this question is more frequent, it'll probably be more frequent over the next year and, and coming years, is essentially, how do we order uh, our, our now becoming legacy application portfolio and decide which things to start rewriting first and the quantity of it? Everyone has a lot of trepidation, but clearly that's a, that's a huge thing on the agenda over the next five years or so. I mean, I guess, I don't know if it's true or not. I guess you're always, in theory, needing to rewrite your stuff. But at any given day, it seems like you haven't been actually rewriting your stuff enough and you feel uh, overwhelmed by it. But hints are the shackles of success. Yeah, that's right. One of the best descriptions I've seen lately of microservices is, you know, back in service-oriented architecture, Cote, our mid-2000 days, a lot of focus on things like reuse. And the focus on microservices actually is replaceability. Like, how easy is it to replace things? And that's just a different way of thinking. But to your point, if you're always going to be evolving your stuff, how easy are you making it to replace individual components versus entire $100 million systems? I would think 
flexibility matters there. I like that focus more on carving things up for replaceability, not just reuse. All right, so let's jump into, Yui, uh, I wanted to chat with you a little more about kind of your role on your, your multiple hats, as, as Cote mentioned. And I don't know, part of me really wanted to focus on some of the open source governance piece, because I think sometimes these things are seen as a black box, or even though it's open source, it's seen as, well, you know, Pivotal does all this work, and it's not really an open source project, or whatever. So I just thought it'd be fun to chat with you about kind of what makes up Cloud Foundry, what is that experience like? So I thought I'd start with the this kind of question of, if you look at Cloud Foundry, you think of it as a thing. But in reality, it's not just a thing. It's a set of, what, a couple dozen projects that make up the whole thing. Can you tell us a little bit about how Cloud Foundry is arranged and what makes up the platform as, as projects? Yeah, um, happy to. Uh, right now, Cloud Foundry is uh, arranged into four different uh PMCs, Project Management Councils. Um, the, the main ones are, are Bosch, um, and that contains core Bosch and all of the Bosch CLIs. Um, there's the Runtime PMC, which, which contains most of the core bits from uh, UA to, to uh, Cloud Controller to Garden to the CLI. And then there's the Extensions PMC, which is really a holding place uh, where, where we'd like to nurture um, projects that have extension points on top of the, the core runtime. And then additionally, we our, our newest PMC is the uh, Open Service Broker API uh, working group. And they've been uh, kind of collaborating with the uh, Kubernetes uh, Red Hat community there on, on a service broker model that we can share. And these are all very... DevOps, right? I mean, these are independent teams. They all have different leads, I believe. So, I mean, these are all fairly independent units that come together to collaborate. Is that right? Yeah, they're they're all very independent teams with with different PMs. We certainly have um, teams that are geared towards integration. So, mm -hmm. we have um, a, a release integration team in the runtime PMC that um, you know basically helps with the tooling and. Um, how all of these teams contribute to, you know, a more or less a blessed set of releases that we believe work together, that we can tell the community, these sets of releases we, we believe work well together, and we can provide you some tooling to help you figure out, well, if you need to um, change one of the releases within, how can you test that out? What what sets of tests can you run, and, and how can you put that together? That That's our main, one of our main integration teams. Uh, we have an infrastructure team that works on, on some of the shared components, uh, like uh, etcd and console. So, mm -hmm. so while each of the individual component teams um, are, are function independently, and the UAA team can prioritize UAA-related things, there's mm -hmm. a lot of cross-cutting things that, that come up, and, and we all kind of work together to try to support each other in getting our, our next big feature out. How do you work that? So, I mean, that, that particular part, I mean, did the infrastructure teams and things like that, were they organic? Did they come up after a while where you realized that, I mean, your, your group here sits at the guts of what Cloud Foundry is, so clearly you can break everybody if you don't do things the right way. So did that stuff just kind of emerge? Did you set that up in the beginning? How did you make sure that when you're making changes to these fundamental pieces of Cloud Foundry, that a component like a metrics component in PCF or another component in Bluemix or whatever doesn't collapse? How do you keep it in sync and how did that come to be? Uh, we, we keep it in sync with a lot of testing, a lot of pipelines, a lot of integration. Um, it, this kind of grew out of 
there there used to be literally a single runtime team um, that kept, took care of DEAs, um, HM9000. Um, we were now replacing all of those components, but there there used to be literally one team that was maintaining all of this uh, for a pair team that would cut across five or six different code bases and three or four different languages and still cut the release and, and work with uh, the PWS team to get that deployed. And uh, we we found that, you know, we, we just spent a lot of time trying to keep the lights on and, and not being able to move forward. So we, we started looking at, well, where are some dividing lines? Where, where can we, um, where, where's a, some natural boundaries where we can um, divide up the responsibilities? And I, I think the the, the trust that we have in each other to um, keep moving forward and keep shipping, that, that kind of grows from from starting with that small little team. I mean, I think I've seen slides from you or, or Ansi, who uh, heads up engineering, kind of show like, hey, we had these this few teams and it kind of exploded to here and now it's geographically all over the place and things like that. So as you do think about that, as you, I mean, how do you work on that communication piece? How do you make sure that teams that are distributed geographically kind of working for the most part in the same hopefully sprint cycle I and mean, you tell me if these teams typically work in the same rhythm but is there a communication do you have a daily stand up how do you make sure the teams do stay in sync there's there's a variety of mechanisms that we have we've got the each of the individual teams they've got a uh, daily stand up for themselves um, some of the uh, teams that are closer to each other the diego garden container networking have their own weekly sync up where they talk about where some cross-cutting things. Mm -hmm. um, I have a weekly meeting with each of the teams to talk about um, with them about the health of the team, if there's any blocking issues um, that they're facing from other teams, and you know what are their next big things that that they'd like to work on and, and get some visibility and or, or help with from the other projects. Um, we have in the runtime PMC a biweekly meeting where we just talk about. Um, the, the project leads talk about what they've worked on in the past couple of weeks, what their new uh, new tracks of work are, and um, publishing that very publicly on CFDev, our, our mailing list for, for wider collaboration. And, and then we ha also have uh, a monthly call that, that's open to the wider community to ask us um, whatever questions they, they want about uh, what we're doing and how we do things. So, so when you're when you're like uh, sorting through, I guess as we would say around Pivotal, the the backlog of requests from all these different people. I mean, I mean, I, mean, I guess you're sort of like there's at least three constituencies y'all are sort of managing requests from one yourselves, right? That's always fun, and uh, like you're saying, kind of identifying like, uh, well, we spend a lot of time self managing, so we should figure out fixing that. You kind of standardizing things and not having all these. Uh, different internal scaffolding we have to maintain. I don't know, just to pick one example. And then there are the the various vendors uh, that, that use use uh, Cloud Foundry. And then I guess also to some extent uh, other commercial interests, you know, system integrators and, and others, and even even um, end users who are doing things. And and then I guess there's, there's sort of like the third bucket, which is part of that as well, sort of the actual uh, end users of, of the... Uh, of, of cloud foundry stuff, but also individuals who, who are interested in it. And, and like, I don't know, what's the general thinking y'all go through when you're, you're prioritizing things. There, there's, it, it's, it's pretty complicated. Uh, Cause there's, there's a lot of 
different stakeholders with with different opinions and different abilities to to influence that. Um, there, there's certainly table stakes um, around uh, addressing security issues. Um, and that's important to the community and to uh, foundation members who are uh, producing their their own distributions, right? That that's just table stakes and pretty easy to prioritize those sorts of things. Um, and then there's uh, stability. You know, is um, are are we uh, having issues in terms of scaling? So and so component uh, PWS uh, has a certain workload, and that certain workload is is causing uh, components to fall over. So how can we address that? Or Bluemix is having certain scaling issues because they have a lot of different users uh, on on their environment. So so those kinds of things are, are pretty easy to to prioritize the security and stability, keeping the lights on, sort of table stakes, sort of thing, and and for a lot of teams that may take up uh you know 50 percent of the times you know 70 percent of the time addressing security issues or stability issues and then what what time you have left over um each of the teams they they all have public uh, github repositories where anyone's free to ask uh, via a github issue you know i'd like for the uh, I'd like this kind of feature. This is causing me pain. And that's a direct line into each of the teams um, to try to plus one uh, a particular feature set. And the PMs, you know, take that into consideration um, about, you know, should should we prioritize this? Because we're getting a lot of plus ones about uh, one, one thing or another thing. Um, the HA proxy Bosch release, we were getting a bunch of requests about, you know, can we expose more more features in in HA proxy? And one nice thing was the Stark and Wayne um, they, they put out a community Bosch release that that did a lot of these things. So we uh, reached out to them and asked, you know, hey, can can you uh, come in and and uh, contribute that to the core uh, Cloud Foundry? And now we're we're going into the incubation process. Um, so so that we get a lot of signal just via GitHub issues or PRs that the community is is able to communicate with us through or or through the CF dev mailing list. Now our, our commercial customers, um, IBM's commercial customers or SAP's commercial customers are pivotal. Um, there there's additional conversations that we have with with stakeholders from Pivotal and IBM where Pivotal uh, needs a certain feature set. And and what's interesting is that um, a lot of these are, are somewhat cross-cutting, like a isolation segments is something that a lot of Pivotal customers were very interested in, and uh, IBM uh, was similarly very interested in it. Um, and we, we thought about them a little bit differently, and we, but we collaborated on, on what the MVPs were, uh, should be and what the different phases were, and we kind of worked on that together. So I think... Interestingly, we, we have a lot of common ground on, on what we want to do, and the the edges where there's there's maybe conflict, um, those are kind of few and far between, and, and we try to mediate those by um, by by listening to each other and um, trying to carve out uh, time for for feature sets that people are interested in, and and at the end of the day, we are governed by contribution. So we look at well. IBM's contributing, you know, maybe 10, 20%, 25% of the engineering effort for a particular team. They should have some sway over that 25% of the team's bandwidth, um, what they should do next. So, I mean, is that, does that, you know, we think about the occasional conflict that does come up? Because as you mentioned, we're 
we're all member companies of the Cloud Foundry Foundation, but we all are selling competing offerings and we have different business needs each company needs. So who becomes the arbiter of that? Is it the PM? Does it go up to you know, someone like Chip at the CFF who kind of is the CTO up there? How do you, you know, if there is a design difference or even a prioritization difference, how do we start to come together and, and what sometimes finally wins the day? A lot of the times it's it's the PM. Um, some of the cross-cutting features, I help to facilitate that conversation and we try to find common ground. Um, at the end of the day, uh, Chip, Chip can step in. We very rarely have have gone to that point, and I'm I'm thankful to say we've never actually had to take anything to a vote because we've tried very hard to satisfy uh, everyone's um, concerns just through the normal um, give and take that 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 occurs. So we might say, "Hey, um, you know, I, we we realize you want to prioritize this." Uh, could you help us by um, sending out over a couple of engineers, um, mm -hmm. you know, to, to spend time on this? Uh, so uh, very recently, um, Microsoft is interested in adding support for SQL Server to UAA and CAPI. Mm -hmm. And um, we didn't quite have bandwidth in the CAPI team's current set of priorities for SQL Server. Um, but the, the Microsoft team, um, we had a discussion with them and... Um, now they're contributing um, a, a developer uh, to help us get it going and get it going in a repeatable way, not just throwing a PR over the fence, but helping us with our CI and making sure you know, we, we can ma maintain that support into the future. That's exciting. Does the release cadence help? I mean, CF release seems to go out every, uh, I don't know what we're at now, three, four, five, six weeks. I mean, it's fairly frequent that a new CF release gets cut. So does that sort of constant rhythm help that someone doesn't feel like if their priority doesn't get taken care of this release that I'm not waiting a year, like there's a yeah. decent chance it comes pretty quickly? Has that, does release cadence kind of help mitigate the risk? I think so. I, th I think that's key. Um, David Sabetti, who's the PM on the release integration team, he's got a reminder on his calendar every Tuesday to, um, you know, try to push forward a CF release. Um, I think if we can get to a weekly cadence um, uh, with with shipping, you know, this compatible set of bits works together, and um, we believe that nothing is worse than before. <laughs> um, it's it's only better than than it does mitigate the the concerns people have about can I get this one more thing in or this one more bug fix in, um, and and really slowing down uh, the the our delivery cadence there. So, so one one thing that's always interesting to uh, I don't know for me keep an eye on is, is as we mentioned and and you uh, I don't even know if, if you had a chance to uh, or or you, you kind of cut yourself off from laundry listing all the various projects uh, that you get involved in, let alone the ones that are in the whole cloud foundry world. But are are there components in there that get used frequently, like on their own or separately, or all of these things sort of like interdependent with each other, such that like uh, you need all of them to be something? They would just be like a headless Voltron or something. I mean, I'm, it, every now and then this idea of using one part on its own comes up and and in the other in other parts of the world of, of whatever you want to call it, our cloud native ecosystem, there's always a lot of focus on the separate components rather than the whole. But, you know, uh, I wonder if uh, in your experience or, or opinion, like having using any of these things separately makes any sense or it's just a, a bonkers notion. Yeah, I think um, we're we're trying 
um, we're, we're in favor of reusability um, where it makes sense. The UAA um, team, um, their release is actually uh, used independently in a few places, not having to do with Cloud Foundry at all, um, because they're, they're solving uh, an important problem around OAuth um, there. And uh, I, I think that that's really great. The, um, etcd release is is sometimes used independently and um i i believe that team is also working with the the team working on kubo um the the ha proxy release um that we had in cf release uh was used as the base for um the ha proxy bosch release i believe um and and that is certainly also used independently um MySQL release and the Postgres release, they're um, used as the base for, um, you know, your own independent uh, uh, da uh, relational databases as well. Um, we're looking at trying to, uh, you know, at the garden and uh, the GrootFS layers where um, we can share uh, some capabilities with, with other um, container orchestrators. So we're in conversation with them about where some common ground where we can share some libraries, um, if not the entire components, but it, at least share some libraries um, where we're all trying to do a, a similar thing. And and then and then you know on the other end of of, of the uh, I don't know the stack of, of of sophistication as it were. Like I mean you've been, you've been involved in the cloud foundry world for quite some time, as I recall, right? Yes. I, um, well. Since since 2014. Sure, long ago. But but it, <laughs> you, know, I, you know I I only have sort of like a, a slight dilettante dilettante study of, of all this. But it seems like and, and correct me where I'm wrong. It seems like there's a history of of uh, of uh, naming in the cloud foundry world where it started off with the usual just like really silly names that engineers will come up with, right? Whether they're like recursive names or like named after robots or whatever. And then at some point there was kind of like a, a a softening or a slight maturation, right? Like you would have something like Garden or Diego, but then nowadays mm -hmm. it seems like there's a policy of like name the thing the thing that it does, right? Like don't uh, don't come up with some funny name for it. Like be extremely descriptive of what it is. And so like, is there is there some like policy on naming things, or is my uh, is my characterization of how it's evolved accurate or anything? What's what's been the name with like? the first bucket of silly names and nowadays, and I don't mean silly in a judgmental way. It's fun. But like, it seems like there was a bunch of just like, you know, let's come up with a funny name for something. And nowadays it's just like very, uh, I don't know how to describe it. Straightforward. I know what you mean. Like droplets versus, you know, isolation segments is the most boring corporate name, but makes total sense given what it is. Exactly. Versus yeah. something else. I, I think it, it's, it's just an, an evolution where we found that, even within people who are familiar with Cloud Foundry, it was getting kind of hard to keep track of what a particular component does mm. or, um, or, or what it means within the, in the system. So, um, you know, I, I tell uh, Jules, Jules Friedman all the, all the time that he is not allowed to name anything anymore uh, <laughs> so, uh, be, because he's, he'd always come up with, with interesting punny names. But uh, it, it, for, for someone coming in from the outside or wanting to reuse a particular component, it makes it just that much harder to find, find your component and, and want to reuse it um, and just uh, explore 
as as the ecosystem or the number of projects grows and grows, um, we we want to really uh, reduce the barrier to entry, and and naming um, kind of gets in the way sometimes. So so what are what are some of those uh, fun punny names that are now on the uh, the restricted list? Or I guess they're not on the restricted <laughs> list, but, the, but that, um, are, or that are that are uh, got, that are representative of of. Uh, fun instead of easy to comprehendability. Also, um, Diego used to have a, a number of interesting um, component names. Um, there was a tinker, tailor, um, soldier, uh, and a circus. <laughs> there, there was that the theme there, and we ended up renaming all of those components to be um, a little bit more transparent about what what they do, mm. um, and uh, the container networking team that they used to have uh, they they used to have a release called Netman, um, and uh, they've since renamed it to CF Networking to be a bit more clear. Um, there, um, the the Bit Service used we we still internally call the team Flintstones, but they they wanted to call their release the the Flintstones team, um, and that was an extrapolation from um, I I don't even remember how we how we got to Flintstones, but it made sense at the time. Um, there was some some association with pebbles, uh, <laughs> and then it somehow went over went over to uh, Flintstones. Uh, but but the service is, the team's now called the Bit Service Team, uh, so so we're trying to be more clear and a bit more discoverable and a bit more accessible to to new people coming into the Cloud Foundry ecosystem. Uh, yeah, I, I, guess, I guess as a uh, a, a sort of uh, maybe more of an almanac than a grimoire. But as far as a grimoire of naming metaphors, like the Flintstones are pretty approachable. But you don't want to just throw like what's the guy's name, Lacare. A Tinker Tailor spy thing at someone and have them figure out all the uh, the intricacies of what those metaphors mean. So speaking of, I mean, since 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 you've done some some work and 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 also presenting and things on this topic, so we talked about like some of the isolation stuff last week, but but just give us like a an, an overview of what that uh, what what that bundle of capabilities is. And you were kind of alluding to this earlier, like why 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 it became a high priority thing to work on and and what what motivated people to want it and and made you all choose it as as a thing to to develop yeah um isolation segments i'm I'm pretty excited um that that we've got the capability out there now the the cli just became available um last week um so the big things there are um trying to reduce complexity for for operators so for um a number of, of companies, they, they deploy, um, they end up deploying uh, completely separate cloud foundries um, for uh, many different reasons. And we're trying to look at, well, that's interesting. Why do you have 16 cloud foundries deployed at, at your company? You know, right. that, that seems like a lot of overhead, a lot of complexity um, uh, that, you know, and and. What some of the reasons were that while we are looking for um, ways of segmenting the workload so that um, it, it could just be a quality service saying, okay, these apps are higher priority, so maybe we'll stripe these across three AZs, and maybe the dev environment will only stripe across two AZs or one AZ because uh, they're, they're lower priority, um, or they get the... the you know, cheaper hardware, whereas our, our prod workloads get, you know, SSDs or something like that. 
Um, so being able to, to to make that a little easier for for operators to say these workloads um, can have a, a better time on the platform without having to um, have a wholly separate login um, space and org management and management of quotas and whatnot that, that you have to do with every single new Cloud Foundry that, that you stand up. Mm. So, so there's sort of like at least two main motivations. One of them is, is, is as you say, you know, you're looking to solve a problem and then you set up 16 foundations and now you have 16 problems. Which which is yes. exciting, and and that 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 problem essentially is there is a uh, there is a uh, I don't know a certain amount of management required uh, operational things and integrating and then and then also what comes with that as you're alluding to is verifying that you've set all of your security stuff up correctly and you have everything configured so you've got to go to all sixteen of these instances to make sure that it's acting in the the way you intended and 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 you desired and so. It would be nice if you just had like one setup for all of that. And then and then the reasons people are motivated to do that, I mean, as the name would imply, is and I and I see this all the time, is is they still they have this mentality of uh dev and production at least, or prod, as mm-hmm. the kids like to say. Um and uh you know, so at least you have that, but you might also have QA and other things. You might have all these these different foundations out there. And so I guess I guess the feeling is that like previous to having isolation segments, like you can't really effectively, I'm trying not to use the word isolate, but make it <laughs> seem like to the end users and the various processes that are running in there that they're own, they're in their own foundation. So you need controls in there to uh, uh, shield them off from other things. And I mean, do you, do you think what's in there would allow people to fold down 16 foundations now, or like when do you think when do you think that would be? Uh, you know, when's there going to be like a, a a CF make it all one foundation with hyphens underneath there. I don't know if we're, we're ever going to be able to get to CF make it all one foundation for certain customers. Um, there, there certainly like some of some of the things are um, use cases that that people want to solve or is disaster recovery, and um, any two ways you look at that, you you just need two. <laughs> right. right. Um, uh, unless your mean time to recovery is is inf- is is really really quick um, but but for the most part uh, a lot of people try to solve that with two um, I think I could see um, maybe a reduction by half in certain in- environments um, where where maybe that's num- 16 foundations goes down to eight um, because you still have region regional um, needs you need your uh, apps to be running close to the data wherever that may be. Um, so, so there's there's still some some additional foundation uh, additional use cases that we need to look at and see how could we how could we solve that and and reduce the overhead. But I think right now with the capability we have for some customers, we could probably del- uh, reduce the number of foundations they have by half, and and that's pretty big. So when you're a uh... So, I mean, I know from following some of what you all had to build for isolation segments, sometimes these things that appear straightforward are obviously complex under the covers. Are there other things that make up, especially your domain, that maybe are a little uh, underrated in terms of how, you know, what they have to do and where there's, I mean, Cloud Foundry is a really complex distributed system. It's exciting, but you can take a lot for granted because we purposely shield people from a lot of the guts. What are some of the things underneath the covers, though, that maybe we should appreciate a little more? I've... I've always thought CF push um, just 
it, it's it's beautiful, but it, it's hiding away so much complexity. It's a it's a massive orchestration of of what's going on between um, from from the time we take your bits um, and uh, put it together with a build pack um, and and make it runnable code, so that all you had to do was push the that application source that you really care about, um, and then uh, how we actually place it. Um, into uh, and and keep it running. How how much we we work hard to make sure if your instance goes down, if you go oom, we'll try to bring it back. If your 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 route availability and how we can um, scale out horizontally um, across a lot of our components, um, how how much we we do under the covers to make that CF mm -hmm. push experience. Um, as transparent as this. I mean, the health stuff's interesting. I was reading this morning a little bit just on, on some of the other things public clouds do for things like scaling and health recovery. And they still focus a lot on the VM. Like if the VM is unhealthy, we'll replace it, but your app could be flapping and they don't really know this or can't do anything. So again, it can be underrated that CF's looking at the app health and it's also looking at host health because we're doing this dual scheduling thing. But that's yeah. a really interesting sophistication that like we're actually making sure your app instance is healthy, even if the host is doing great. If your app isn't healthy, we'll take care of that. Good. Well, I just have one more question for you. Um, sure. You had mentioned, you know, that, that cool example of, of Microsoft pitching in some folks and this and that. Do you incorporate many public pull requests or the most contributors from people who have gone through the full-time committer process? I believe CF Foundation has some guidelines for what it takes to be a full-time committer, at least to be a real committer. So what does it look like? How could I be a random person who wants to improve the logrigator and actually send a pull request? Yeah. Um you you have to sign our, our CLA um, agreement, um, but but Which yeah. You, what what does it mean uh, if I sign that? Uh, that more or less signs over the the IP for mm -hmm. for the the work that you've done and and allows um, us to take it in as, as an open source and you agree to the license that that we've we have uh, for Cloud Foundry, um, but but more or less um, it's very easy to submit a, a pull request and, and improve the code base. Um, if you want to uh, become a full-time committer, that's a, a six-week process um, where we, we help you um, onboard onto a team and, and get up and going and learn how to um, run a Bosch light and deploy Cloud Foundry. Um, and uh, we have a number of, of uh, a lot of our teams actually have a good mix from Pivotal and IBM, uh, SAP and H8, well, Suze now. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say HP. But but we have a good, uh, a, a really good mix and a growing mix um, of, of contributors on, on all of the core teams now. Well, so I, I, I had, uh, before we wrap up, just one one. Uh... I don't know. Mildly related question. Now, if if I if I was uh, speed reading your LinkedIn profile correctly, it looks like you've spent about half your career developing, and the other half in in QA, more or less. My 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 calendar edition is is pretty poor. But but I'm curious, like like given that, and um, now that you're sort of uh, to be un un DevOpsy on the other side of the QA Dev divide, like how do you think uh, how do you think in the past like seven or so years like like QA has changed. Like I get, I, and I ask because I, I ask this question, I get asked a question a lot by uh sort of sad looking QA people. And they're like, but what happens to me 
with 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 all of this and so like like both both in your day-to-day work and then just like the way you think about it like what's what's the involvement of qa in all this what what does a qa person do well i think um that i i find um you know the the qa functionality and and having come from that background like i i think it's important but but i think what what we've done with Cloud Foundry is we've tried to absorb that into the development team. So we actually did have explicit exploratory testers, which is a bit different from QA, but we've converted all of those into into devs on the team to like spread their knowledge and their thinking about testing and 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 whatnot uh, into uh, all of the development teams and trying to take that in as a core responsibility in into the development. I, I think the biggest change was was just you know not quite being a black box tester anymore or even a what what they they called white box tester um where it's all on the outside you're you're thrown over a bunch of code um thrown thrown code over the fence and told you know just can can you make sure um our our code doesn't have bugs in it and i think really shifting that responsibility back to the teams and uh ingraining in the teams that that qa mentality that that's their responsibility that's part of definition of done because they can help to build the right amount of tools at at the right complexity level because i used to build uh so much automation that was outside not trusting the dev team at all <laughs> um to to write a good unit test or anything like that and it was just very brittle and and a huge time sink and i think uh shifting that responsibility to the dev team so that they can build the right tools at the right layer is one of the things that pivotal believes in um in our in our pairing processes and one of the things that we've tried to instill into cloud foundry the way you describe uh, sort of like traditional QA, it sounds like it flies under the uh, the bold flag of a whole lot and not very much fun, right? Like just just sort of like writing your own things around stuff that's brittle and always kind of uh, being sort of like, I don't know, cynical in your approach to making sure things are working well, which certainly you have to do if you're like separate groups. I, th- I think they call it the checks and balances. But, you know, I, I wonder, like hearing, hearing you describe it, uh, for for the serial listeners out there, not the podcast, but people who just listen to this in order, like in the previous episode, uh, Andrew Schaefer and I were talking about the Google SRE book, and I think there's an interesting framing. I, I don't know if you if you think this would apply to how it seems like QA is best done nowadays, but of course, a a Google SRE person, which is the the people who are responsible for keeping uh, Google stuff up and running and helping make sure they have a good platform that works to dramatically shortchange the description, but they're charged with basically spending 50% of their time doing like sysadmin stuff and the other 50% of their time developing software that helps run their stuff. And it seems like, again, I don't know if that balance is great for a QA person, but that sort of simplicity and clarity of how you spend your time seems to be, uh, I don't know, it seems like what we want, I don't know who we is, but what the industry wants from QA people nowadays is for them to start being programmers more. Yeah, I, I think there there there's that and and why not, right? Why why wouldn't we why wouldn't we or why couldn't they um be programmers more? Yeah, I mean that's certainly what what comes out is if you can automate a lot of the uh the the uh, QA toil as it were, then what what becomes needed and valuable is is a uh I don't know, a, a meatware computer figuring out interesting things to do rather than just uh, the automated stuff. And then also writing all the stuff that automates QAing. Well, 
Uh, thanks for being a guest on here. It's always nice to get a, sure. an overview of, of uh, various parts of the Cloud Foundry world. And uh, yeah, so so if people want to uh, look up things that you're doing, correct my math about the time you've spent doing your uh, QA versus development, or or, <laughs> or otherwise find you. Like, what are what are some stuff places you have online for people to find you? I, you've caught me. I don't really update my LinkedIn profile at all. Well, that's fine. Um, and that that's probably because I'm actually pretty happy working on Cloud Foundry, so I'm not trying to. <laughs> um, uh, keep that that too up to date. Um, the uh, places you can find me, I'm I'm on Twitter um, uh, at UETCow um, on on Twitter. I'm sure that's probably going to be hard to sound at, but <laughs> um, and uh, otherwise, you can reach me on CF Dev or on the Cloud Foundry Slack uh, at UE um, at DIEU on the the Cloud Foundry Slack. So I, I'm reachable in in a number of places. All over the place there more or less. Well, well, great. Well, every, as always, thanks for listening. This has been Pivotal Conversations. The best way to get all of these episodes, as I was implying earlier, is if you should just subscribe to the feed and they'll automatically download to whatever it is you listen things in. Uh, and while you're doing, you know, if, if you want to find that, you can go into iTunes or Overcast or the podcast app or wherever and just search around for it and uh, you'll be able to find it. And if, if you're not into that kind of thing and you're, you're one of these people who, for whatever reason, likes to listen thing in web browsers, you know, it's no judgment about that. You go to soundcloud.com slash pivotal conversations and see all of our past episodes forever. Uh, and uh, also, if you want to see the full show notes, we post those. It's usually about trailing by a few days or a week, but we post all those notes over at uh, pivotal.io slash podcast. And we'll put links to all of the uh, most all of the stuff that we mentioned, including including the thrilling news items. And it's always nice if you actually uh, write to us or just do a little tweet thing, whether it's uh, in whatever social world you're in, just so that we know that people are out there. That's always encouraging. As fun as it is to talk into a microphone to disembodied voices, it's good to know that there's there's listeners as well. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye bye.